You hear that last week? We talked about not hurrying. You'll be pleased to know that I am not going to go through a line-by-line exegesis of what what David's just read to us. I'm very relieved at that thought, and I hope you are too. In his second letter to Timothy, and in chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul writes these words. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray, shall we? Father, what a privilege it is to have your word. Words that have shaped lives down the centuries. Father, that you should choose to to get involved with us, to speak to us, to give us instructions, to give us guidance, to help us to live the way that you want us to live is absolutely amazing. And we've sung this morning that all your promises are yes and amen. The words that you've spoken over us are life and truth and for our benefit. We ask you, Father, as we, as we look into your truth this morning, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would make it live to us and us to you. Amen. John stole half of my sermon in his intro, <laughs> so this might not last very long at all. There's one... One thought that I hope I can leave with you in what I say this morning, and it's this. Having other people around us from whom we can learn and be challenged will help us in our pursuit of God. Let me say that again. Having others around us from whom we can learn and be challenged will help us in our pursuit of God. As John said, this is the last in the series that we've been looking at particular aspects on the pursuit of God. I, bef- the first thing I did when I looked at this, I, I went to Wikipedia and I said, what does pursuit mean? What does it mean to pursue God? According to the dictionary definition, to pursue is to chase to follow, to hound, to shadow, to trail, to track. In all contexts, the verb to pursue is an active verb. And it suggests that we, you and I, if we're going to pursue God, it will involve effort on our part. It won't just happen. It's not that we suddenly become Christians and everything becomes clear and our lives are totally transformed and we never have to work at anything for the rest of our lives. 
If you've been given Christian teaching suggesting that that is the way, I suggest to you that what you've been given is false teaching. It's clear that if we are going to pursue God, it involves work and effort on our part. Indeed, in the text from last week, we had this phrase, make every effort to enter into God's rest. What a paradox that is. Make effort to rest. We need to work at pursuing God. And it also suggests that we need to make it a priority. It can't be number 10 on our to-do list. If we're going to take pursuing God seriously, pursuing God has to be number one on our to-do list every day of our lives. When we began this series, I was leading the service and I started off by reading a, a verse which has come to mean an awful lot to me over, over my Christian life. And it's Paul's letter to the Philippians and in chapter 1 and verse 6. And I need to find Philippians. It comes after Ephesians, doesn't it? <coughs> after Ephesians. Paul writes this. <coughs> Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When God put his hand on your life and said, I choose you, I want you to be mine forever, and you recognize that Jesus had given his life so that you could be free that he hung on a cross and died so that your sins could be forgiven and you could be made right with God. And at that moment, you entered into a new life with Jesus. That was the start of the process. That wasn't the end of the process. That was the start. And what Paul is saying to the Philippians is, I started something in you on that day, and indeed before that day, when I created you and brought you to the point where you came to know me, that's just the start, and there's work I want to do in you from here on out to make you into the person that I always wanted you to be. So hold that thought. God has got a purpose and a plan for your life that doesn't say you're going to stay right where you are for the rest of your life. God's plan for your life is, I want to change you, I want to shape you, I want to make you different, I want to make you become that perfect, beautiful person that I always wanted you to be. And that's why he's writing to Timothy here. That's why he's exhorting him. But let's, let's recap, sorry, let me read to you some words. This is the, a book by Tozer called The Pursuit of God. At the beginning of the series, Dan asked how many of us had read it, and only two of us put our hands up. How many of us have read it? More than two. That's progress. <coughs> Something's working, John. <coughs> this is what Tozer says in chapter three of his book, and I hope I can read it because I've forgotten my reading glasses. Among the famous sayings of the church fathers, none is better known than that of St. Augustine. Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. If I use more up-to-date words, you have made me for yourself, 
And my heart will not be at rest until I find that rest in you. The great saint states here in a few words the origin and interior history of the human race. God made us for himself. This is the only explanation that satisfies the heart of a thinking man. Whatever his wild reason may say. Should faulty education and perverse reasoning lead a man to conclude otherwise, there is little that any Christian can do for him. For such a man I've got no message. My appeal is addressed to those who've been previously taught in, the secret, in secret by the wisdom of God. I'm speaking to those thirsty hearts whose longings have been wakened by the touch of God within them. And as such, they need no reasoned proof. Their restless hearts furnish all the proof they need. God formed us for himself. The Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Catechism, asks the ancient questions, what and why? And answers them in one short sentence, hardly matched in any uninspired work. Question. What is the chief end of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. With this agree the 24 elders who fall on their faces to worship him who lives forever and say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things and for your pleasure they are and were created. God formed us for his pleasure. The pursuit of God is really entering into what God made us for in the first place. We won't be truly satisfied deep within until we discover God's heart for us as individuals, God's heart for us as a church. And that's a progressive thing that will take us for the rest of our lives. Let's begin by reflecting on the earlier parts of the series. In the, initially, John gave an account of the revival in the Hebrides, of how, which started with two women, very advanced in years, committing themselves to pray on a regular basis and believing God that he would do something to change their community. He saw that prayer. He saw their hearts. He answered that prayer. He sent, he, 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 he sent a man to go and to minister the truth. And they saw people falling on their faces without any contact with anybody else at all. It's just somebody's walking on the road and suddenly they're on their knees seeking out for God. That revival, that desire to pursue God at all costs. Now Dan looked at us having divided desires. If, we, if pursuing God is one of a number of things that we think are important, we'll never really get it. Pursuing God has to be with undivided attention. It has to be our single primary focus. In order to do that, we need to put prayer first, as Jeff spoke to us about. Prayer is the kernel. Prayer is a relationship 
with God. That's how we communicate. That's how we develop. And Amber challenged us to have that character of generosity. God's heart is generous toward us. Can we be generous toward one another, toward those in need? And then last week, John talked to us about discovering God's rest, moving at God's speed, moving in an unhurried way. As we said, John, the topic this morning is accountability. That could be a really heavy topic, couldn't it? Where the leaders come out with a, with a list of rules that we have to abide by, and every time we come together, they check whether we've done those things. That is not where I'm going. There are some sects and some Christian strands where that sort of thing happens. That is not, I believe, where God is at. That is not his heart. Accountability has to be, has to be mutual and it has to be willing. So in this letter, what is it? What is the context of this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy? Paul has spent about three years building up the church in Ephesus, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 19. He's been teaching and exhorting and building up the church, and then he feels God, call, God calling him to go back to Jerusalem and In Jerusalem, he'll be imprisoned and subsequently sent to Rome. Before leaving for Jerusalem, he called together the elders of the Ephesian church and he said this. Again, if my my glasses were here, it'd be even better. He says this. Now I know that none none among you whom I have gone about preaching the king, with whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom of God will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise to distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now this is, so Paul is saying to the, the elders of the church that he's built up over three years, I'm going away and when I do, look after what I've entrusted to you. Care for the people, care for the flock, look after them so that they will grow. And I'm warning you, there will be people who will come along and they'll try and feed you lies, as David read out in the beginning of the passage that we had today, that there will be people who will come and declare things to you that aren't true. Just as an aside, lots of people stand up here and preach on a Sunday morning How do you know whether what we're saying is true or not? I could be feeding you a pack of lies this morning. How would you know whether what I was saying was true or not? Do you go away afterwards and take what you like out of it, forget the bits that you don't like, and continue to live in your life as if you haven't been here? Or do you swallow everything I say and think, oh, it must be right because it's the person up the front, or John last week, or... 
Amber the week before or Dan or others who've come and spoken, how do you know whether what I say or what anybody says is right? The measure has to be, does it stack up with this book? Is what's being said consistent? If, it's not, if it doesn't fit with this, it's not true. There is no other answer. It has to agree with this book. Okay, well, there are ways and ways to interpret the Word of God. And the way we interpret it is we allow the Spirit working within us to, to filter that. And also we talk to one another. And we, we, we throw the ideas around with one another. And then we come to a point where we see that what is said is truth. So that's what Paul has said to the Ephesian church. A few, a few years later, Paul has found himself in prison, in under house arrest in Rome. And he wrote a, le- he wrote a letter to this Ephesian church. And surprisingly enough to us, it's called the Book of the Ephesians. And in the second part of that letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, there's a lot of practical advice on how to live the Christian life. I'm not going to go through it all now. Otherwise, as Ivan challenged me earlier, sort of, I should have set the dinner clock for 3 o'clock if I'd known you were preaching. That was a joke. You were allowed to laugh. So Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians. And then a few, late, even a few years after that, he's, he's probably still under house arrest in Rome. Whether it's the same house or whether it's a different house, we're not clear. But he writes this personal letter to Timothy. Timothy, who is a pastor in that church in Ephesus. And he writes a letter to remind him of his calling and exhorting him to live a godly life. So... We come to our text. Training ourselves to be godly, as I said at the beginning, it takes time and effort. Training in godliness is something that begins when you first become a Christian and it continues until the day that Jesus comes or calls you home. At its simplest, godliness is taking on God's character. It's imitating God. This has been the essence of godly living from the earliest times. Way back in the Old Testament law in Leviticus, it says this, Be holy, for I am holy. In the New Testament, it's the same. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24, God tells us to clothe ourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Colossians chapter 3, we read these words, As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with meekness, with patience. The result of us believing in Christ is that Christ's Spirit comes and fills us enabling us to bear fruit according to his nature. And what is that fruit? I learned this when I was at Sunday school. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the sort of characteristics that Paul is talking about 
when he talks about training ourselves in godliness. Later in this letter to Timothy, in the passage that Amber referred to two weeks ago, Paul links godliness with contentment. In chapter 6 and verse 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Why is that? Because contentment indicates that we're willing to trust God to look after us, whatever our circumstances And godliness shows us that we're preparing to meet him in his kingdom. Now, I just want to point out that it's not only Paul who speaks of godliness. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. These things he has given us, through, through these, he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may not participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self control and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's a real progression, there's a real development, there's a sense of... There's, there's a goal, there's an aim, there's a purpose that, God, that Paul, Paul and Peter are saying, this is where I want your life to go. If you will imitate me, if you will grow to where God wants to take you, these are the qualities that you should see in increasing measure. By the way, I'm a failure in all of this. Don't think I've arrived, because I haven't. So... Paul says, train yourself to be godly. The first thing I want to say about that is that it involves personal responsibility. Paul says, train yourself. Nobody is responsible for your spiritual life and your spiritual growth more than you are. It's up to you to make sure that you grow as a Christian. It's not up to me. It's not up to John. It's not up to your mum or your dad or your husband or your wife or your partner. It's up to you to train yourself to be godly. So there's personal responsibility. Secondly, there is a goal. The goal is to be godly. That progression that I just read to you in 2 Peter chapter 1. And thirdly, there is a focus. In verse 10, Paul wrote these words. We have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men. The focus of our desire to be godly is God. If our motivation for being godly is anything else, if our motivation for developing these qualities is anything other than God himself, our focus is misaligned. And we will fail. 
if our desire to be godly is anything other than God himself pursuing God, we will fail. Our focus has to be the right one. Now, no, I, I love sport. Nikki will tell you I love sport. Watching it, not doing it. No top athlete that I am aware of achieves their goals without training. You don't just waltz into the Olympics and run the final and shatter a world record. It, doesn't, it just doesn't happen unless you've got fancy new Nike footwear, which um, makes it easier. <clears throat> no athlete achieves their goals without training or without coaching or without advice or without encouragement from others. As I say, John stole a lot of my message at the beginning of the serv- service. But do you have other people, possibly but not necessarily older and wiser, to whom you look for counsel? Or are you in a position where you can, imp- you can provide that encouragement to others? Can you think of another Christian that you admire or respect? What is it in them that affords that admiration? Think about it for a minute. What is it, what is it in that person or persons that affords that admiration? Is it what they say? Or, more likely, how they live. Here in verse 12, Paul exhorts Timothy to set an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Jesus himself says, Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify my Father in heaven. In 20th or 21st century language, what that's saying is walk the walk, don't just talk the talk. In verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hand on you. And again, in the second book of Timothy, and chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul writes to Timothy. This is about, he's written this his letter he writes about 18 months after the first one. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul is saying, recognize your gifting. And we went through a, a period of looking at gifting just recently as a church. And we were all invited to go up and sort of to receive prayer. And either John or Peter prayed for us that God would develop gifting in us. But I want to say to you that your gifts will only grow if you use them. If you're given a gift and you're aware that you're given a lovely gift, and you open it up, and you take it out of the box, and think, gosh, this is wonderful, 
and then you put it back in the box and put it on the shelf in the cupboard and leave it there, that gift is of no value to you. That gift is of no value to those with whom you could share it. Paul is exhorting Timothy to not neglect the gift of God that is within him. I don't know what that gift is for you. Please don't neglect it. Look for opportunities to use the gift that God has given you. The gifts need to be used and developed, otherwise we can become stale and ineffective. Maybe the answer, as John alluded to earlier, is to get involved in one of the teams, to explore whether the gifting, the prompting that God has put in your heart can be best used in some of the areas where we're looking to develop service within the church. Last week, John referred to our vision as a church, and I remembered it so well that I had to go back onto the website to make sure I quoted it correctly. We aim to help anyone and everyone do life with Jesus so that individuals, our local community and beyond can flourish. This, quite rightly, has an outward focus to those who are not yet walking with Jesus. But it also challenges us in our walk with each other. In his final words to his disciples in Matthew 28, in what is referred to as the Great Commission, Jesus sends out the eleven and he says to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples. He doesn't say, go and make converts. Go and tell people that I died for their sins and they can live forever with me in heaven. End of story. God says, go out and make disciples. Make other people into followers of me. Bring other people to the point where their one priority is to pursue God the Father, to discover him and his purpose for them more than anything else. Discipleship is a lifelong process. How can I help you and how can you help me in our walk with Jesus? What can we do for each other to encourage each other to get closer to Jesus, to move along that trail in 2 Peter chapter 1 of developing those qualities that make us more like Jesus? How can we cultivate that fruit of the Spirit in each other's lives? Am I more loving, more caring, more peaceful, more self-controlled now than I was a year ago or 30 years ago? Don't all answer at once. I would say that I'm not the best person for determining whether that growth has happened. You are. And I won't know whether that's happening unless you tell me. In love, of course. We need each other. We need to be accountable to one another. God has not put us in this body to live as isolated people who come together for an hour and a half once a week. God is building us into a community where we love and we care for one another, where our relationships with one another are important. And the reason for that is that as we're all looking and getting closer to God, as we stimulate one another, it brings us all closer to one another. You know the analogy of the spokes on a bicycle. On the outside of the tyre, the spokes are quite far apart. 
But they're all going into the center and they go in and as they get closer to the center, they get closer to each other. If our heart is to pursue God as individuals and we're training each ourselves in godliness, we will, by definition, get closer to one another. A final passage, and John referred a little bit to this as well at the beginning. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God in sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. All his promises are yes and amen. He doesn't say that. And let us consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How can we spur each other on to love and good deeds? And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. One, one final plug. Within the, within the church, we have, we have home groups because just meeting for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, I don't believe is enough for us to grow closer to God and in deeper fellowship as a community. So we have groups that meet at various times during the week when... Smaller groups can get together, they can pray with one another, they can encourage one another. And I would like to really encourage you, if you're not part of a home group, maybe you only recently started coming to the church, or maybe in years gone by there have been reasons why you haven't been able to. Let me encourage you to think very, very seriously about the benefit to our pursuing God, to our training to be godly, that there is in spending time with each other, in submitting to one another, in sharing, in saying, I'm really struggling with this, or this has really worked for me. Can you help me? Can you pray with me? Have you been through this sort of experience yourself to help me to know how I can grow better, how I can become more the person that God wants me to be? I think I'm going to leave it there, but just give you that strap line that I started with. Having others around us from whom we can learn and be challenged will help us in our pursuit of God. Amen.